Red Cloaks Radio is a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Hi, this is Jesse here with Red Cloaks Radio, joined by my co-host today. Marta Leticia from Boston Red Cloaks. And today, a very exciting moment for us in a rather bleak week is we are having as our guest today, Namita Luthra, who is a women's rights advocate. She serves on the board of directors of Monumental Women, the President's Council of the New York Hall of Science, and the advisory board of Lex Seher, a nonprofit where Martha Leticia and I are both closely involved. And she's also served on the board of directors of Saki for South Asian Women. For years, Ms. Luthra was a senior staff attorney at the ACLU Women's Rights Project, working on litigation, advocacy, and public education to advance the rights of women and girls. There, she co-authored a book called The Rights of Women and successfully litigated gender discrimination during trials in federal court. Before that, Ms. Luthra was a state attorney at the office of the appellate defender representing indigenous clients and a fellow at the ACLU National Legal Department. Welcome. We are so glad that you're here. Thank you both for having me. I'm excited to be here. Today, we really want to touch base with your reactions to the Supreme Court's anticipated yet devastating decision to set aside precedent and overturn Roe versus Wade. Now we've had one week to process it. Where are you today? Well, listen, I think the first signal that I want to send to women's and girls' rights advocates in the United States and elsewhere is that we will not be deterred. Despite the ruling in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, I've spent the past two years on a deep dive of American women's fight for the vote. And to win it, three generations of women of all colors fought for it. Their tactics deserve studying and critiquing like military generals because they were in the fight of their lives. Women like Alice Paul, Sojourner Truth, Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, Carrie Chapman Catt, and on and on. They need credit, but even more than that, their same strategies can be employed today because we're still in the fight of our lives, the fight for equality and justice and liberty. Um, the leaked draft opinion that was leaked on May 2nd for me strangely was like an inoculation. Um, I felt submerged after reading the leaked draft. Um, I think as much as an advocate for women and girls may have prepared herself for it, seeing our Supreme Court and um, Justice Alito's writing in black and white was leveling. And uh, so then when the actual opinion came out, uh, my symptoms were milder because I had been inoculated by the leaked draft. Um, but really my main, the thrust of my sentiments to any advocate is this notion of staying undeterred. Um, there are so many stories of countless diverse suffragists, but this one in particular sustains me. It's 1915. It's election eve in New York State. Suffragists are in a room waiting to see if they've won the vote for the women in New York, and it's not looking good. 
The women are gathered, some are crying. Anna Shaw says to Carrie Chapman Cat, how long is this going to delay us and push victory back? Cat answers, only until the morning. We start again on the campaign tomorrow morning. The Dobbs majority opinion detonates the architecture of women's full citizenship. It weaponizes women's historical oppression and uses it to deny us constitutional protection today. In addition, Justice Alito seems to be issuing a challenge. He's saying this in essence, American women, you have the vote. If you don't like what your state legislatures are doing, vote, have at it. And this is what Carrie Chapman Catt had to say about the vote. This is a quote. The vote is your emblem of equality, women of America, the guarantee of your liberty. That vote of yours has cost millions of dollars and the lives of thousands of women. Women have suffered agony of soul, which you never can comprehend, that you and your daughters might inherit political freedom. That vote has been costly, prize it. The vote is a power, a weapon of offense and defense, a prayer. Use it intelligently, conscientiously, prayerfully. Progress is calling on you to make no pause, act. Her words sustain me, no pause, it's a power, and today in a post row and Casey world, we've got to vote like our lives depend on it because they do. These words across time from one woman to the next are uh, like a tool. They're an acknowledgement of how difficult many of us are feeling right now. Whether we're feeling undeterred or not, we can certainly be feeling grief, loss, sorrow, disappointment, rejection, dismay. There's a, there's a lot of feelings happening. It's amazing how the suffragists were able to just keep being beaten back, arrested, literally beaten, and then just get back up and get out there. Yes. Yeah. And I think in your list of adjectives to describe how we're all feeling, Jesse. One of the words that I feel, and I feel it on my own behalf and on behalf of girls all across the country, particularly girls who are living in um, states that have trigger laws, laws that had already been put into place before Dobbs even came down, that will put in automatic bans around the country. My word for how they might feel is betrayal. It's a betrayal of one's government, your state government, your federal government, the place one looks to, to help one's life, make one's life better, help live out in fact, our inalienable rights. One, one word that I would use is betrayal. Those girls and those women, we all really have been betrayed. If I could, I would, I would also like to add manipulation. There's this 
way of manipulating women to think or to or not to think to make them just be vessels because that's what i feel now we have become not me but our daughters granddaughters and people and women to come if this doesn't change we've talked about girls and thinking about the individual girls or women but let's think about girls for a minute and what really it looks like when there is not a recognized constitutional right to access abortion and we've seen how Clarence Thomas for example brought in sort of these images of women and stereotypes into the courtroom just in this very case how did those feelings the use of imagery strike you I looked back at the Dobbs oral argument on December 1st, and about a minute into the presentation by the lawyer who was representing Jackson Women's Health, Justice Thomas interjected and said this. He's asking, you're relying on the autonomy theory. She responds, both bodily integrity and the ability to make decisions related to family, marriage, and childbearing. He says, Some years ago, after we decided, Casey, we had a case out of South Carolina, I believe, and involved a woman who had been convicted of criminal child neglect because she ingested cocaine during her pregnancy, and her case was post-viability. So it doesn't fit the facts of this case. If she ingested cocaine pre-viability and had the same negative consequences to her child, do you think? The state had an interest in enforcing that law against her. And Julie Rickleman, the lawyer for Jackson Women's Health, says that's not really what this case is about. And this restates what this case is about. Um, and he and he sort of raises it again. He says um, he's really talking about women who ingest drugs during pregnancy. And it was a moment of he sort of brought her into the room. He brought that woman into the courtroom in a South Carolina case that had just come after Casey and Casey was decided in 1996, so years ago. And it made me think about the power of bringing people into the courtroom. And I've been thinking about This all started really with Texas SB 8, Senate Bill 8, that was enacted in May and then went into effect in September 2021. And I thought about Texas girls and the age, the data on age of menstruation is really changing. There's been recent reporting around it in May 2022 about how that age of onset of puberty is getting younger and younger. And girls as young as age seven start showing signs of puberty, menstruation begins earlier. From the moment a girl begins to menstruate in Texas, I was thinking about Texas, but since then it's become Oklahoma and Arizona and Idaho and other states. From the moment she begins to menstruate, she becomes confined to these suffocating laws about what she'll be able to do with her body. And back then I was thinking about Texas's six week ban, but now so many of these states are going to impose bans from conception. 
And these harms are not theoretical. There's a case right now out of Brazil where an 11 year old girl was seeking an abortion. She was raped when she was 10, sought an abortion when she was 11 and was denied an abortion. I just saw an advocate from Brazil last week to get an update about her case. And she was granted an abortion in her 29th week of pregnancy after that initial denial. And the girl had said repeatedly that she didn't wanna carry her pregnancy to term. That case, sadly, is a preview of what's to come. And it will be a battle, girl by girl and family by family in our country. It's gonna be a battle waged to see if that girl can seek the health care that she needs, when she needs it, and how she needs it. As you both know, and I'm sure your listeners know, nearly all of these laws that have been passed have no exception for rape and no exception for incest. Um, it's gonna have consequences of shutting down clinics where those clinics are the only place where um, poor women, immigrant women, women of color, they're gonna be disproportionately harmed by all of these laws. And that's gonna become the reality of our United States. It's so interesting. And I think we'll probably wanna have two parts of our conversation because I think in the first part, it, we deserve a little more unpacking before we think about legal frameworks, but to really focus in on this contrast between the, the person that Clarence Thomas is looking at when he thinks about implementing the constitution and law and justice is someone he describes essentially as a woman who's a criminal or a drug addict, or he paints a picture that is an extremely powerful negative image and suggests things like punishment and uh, vindicate, you know, he wants to use laws to vindic vindicate his personal value system, but you're putting up in front of us a young person who has no say in the matter and probably isn't fully even aware of their, their bodily functions yet at that age. And the contrast between your person that you're thinking about is separate because you're surrounding your worldview with love, caring for people, not wanting anyone to suffer, wanting them to be able to have their own self-determination. It's such a contrast. And I'm thinking for some people, I'm also trained as a lawyer, but there are people out there who feel like lawyers don't embrace emotions or think about soft things. And I'm just curious in the broader framework, when you think about the suffragists and you think about this issue, where does it fit in for you as someone who is trained in the law when you look at these human condition questions? When I was thinking about my remarks, I wanted to start talking about Dobbs with Ruth Bader Ginsburg because she had as incisive a mind and as compassionate a heart as any litigator or jurist that I've seen. She, for me, serves as a guiding light. And I know for so many others during these bleakest days, she co-founded the ACLU Women's Rights Project in 1972, began carving out brand new territory of the law, gender discrimination cases. Um, she did it methodically and carefully, one case after the other. Um, but always with the same aim for fighting for women's and girls' full citizenship. 
I worked at the ACLU Women's, Pro Women's Rights Project for years as a litigator, but this is what she said in 1993 during her confirmation hearing. And I'm gonna paraphrase. She says, the decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a woman's life, to her well-being, and to her dignity. When government controls that decision for her, she is being treated as less than a fully adult human responsible for her own choices. It is essential to woman's equality with man that she be the decision maker, that her choice be controlling. If you impose restraints that impede her choice, you are disadvantaging her because of her sex. So that's what she said among many other things. And by the way, she was confirmed by a vote of 96 to three with one Senator not voting. But that question, Jesse, really of heart as well as mind is I think central to being a good litigator. And the way I've been thinking about it recently in my life has not been so much vis-a-vis -vis the law, but this question of who are you beholden to? And for me, this deep dive into American women's history, maybe it's because I have a daughter of my own. There are these questions of, are we beholden to the past and carrying forward the work? Are we beholden to future generations of girls who haven't yet even arrived? That's um, for me, a, a driving question, this question of who am I beholden to? Who do I toil for? So, um, so I think other people answer it with a what, and for me, it's very strikingly a who, and it's very strikingly at this moment, under Dobbs, girls all across the United States who are going to be harmed by these laws. Um, when a state has a trigger law, like the one that's going to be enacted and it's under litigation in so many states right now that there's gonna be a fight to see whether those trigger laws can go into effect. But those laws are signaling to girls in that state that you don't really matter. Your dreams and your hopes and your aspirations and your eventual contributions to society don't matter because any of those can be thwarted. And I don't mean to oversimplify it, but all of these rights that women and girls have are like building blocks, one stacked and balanced on top of the other. And if you whisk one away, the foundational right to decide whether and when to reproduce and how to do that, all of the other blocks come crumbling down, the blocks of education, employment, um, physical, psychological well-being, all of those rights sort of start crumbling down. And the suffragists understood that building blocks analogy because they knew that without the franchise, none of those rights could stand. For those women, they were thinking about the right to hold on to wages because they couldn't hold on to their own wages at that time, enter a contract. Um, keep one's children. If a marriage dissolved, they couldn't do that. So they knew that the franchise was that foundational building block, but so too is 
the ability to decide one's own reproductive life. It is so central, so basic, and so core. And it is, these rights are our inalienable rights. We don't need the government to bequeath them to us as a gift. They're already ours. What we demand is that government not strip them away. And that's the battle that we're in right now. This is an amazing foundation about what's at our foundation and from here, how we move forward. We will be undeterred, that is for sure. And looking both backwards at today and this past week, and then looking forwards with you has been very uplifting um, and opens the door to future conversations. So we're so glad that you took time to be here. Thank you and very well said. Thank you both so much. Thank you. We also here at Boston Red Cloaks want to thank Pandora Peoples, who has a radio show, Healing Wisdom, which airs on Cape Cod on WOMR 92.1 FM and WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. And we had a great conversation with her last week, and we encourage people to check her out and check out her show and listen for that interview. To reach us, you can email bostonredcloaks at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, sometimes on Twitter, and on Instagram. Let's go on being undeterred. Until next time. You've been listening to Red Cloaks Radio, a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Find us at bostonredcloaks.com 